the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the Book of Numbers. We have seen God and His amazing workmanship, both in creation and in His dealings with mankind. We saw God keep His promises to Abraham and His descendants in the book of Exodus by setting them up as a great nation, free from their former bondage to Egypt. God gave the Israelites His moral, civil, and ceremonial laws in the book of Leviticus. Now we will see what God has in store for the Israelites in the book of Numbers. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 1. When someone says, let's study numbers, most people don't squeal for joy in the same way if you said John or Proverbs or Revelation. Numbers, in fact, seems to be a particularly inappropriate title for a part of the revelation of God, doesn't it? Numbers. That seems about as interesting as a book called Telephone Directory. Or, no offense to you math folks out there, but principles of arithmetic. You would not normally figure that that would be something that would fly off the shelves because it grabs people's attention. But surely none of God's word was written to bore the reader. There must be some significance to these names and these numbers and some of the repetition that we see in the book of Numbers. And you know, the first thing to understand the significance of this book is to realize that the early Hebrews, and for a very long time, Hebrews did not call it the book of Numbers. They, in fact, called all of the books of the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Old Testament, after their opening words. For example, Genesis, in the beginning. That's what Genesis comes from, in the beginning. Then you have Exodus, which means these are the names. That's the first phrase you see there. Leviticus, called to be holy. All of those names that they give to those books show the meaning of the book. So, for example, Genesis, in the beginning. It shows where Israel came from and how God's redemptive plan started. Exodus, these are their names. It showed how Israel used to be slaves and now they've become God's people. They, through his redemption, they changed their name. They who were not a people had now become a people. They who were not a nation had become a nation. And then Leviticus, of course, called to be holy. It showed how Israel was to live differently now that they were God's people. So what did the Hebrews call numbers? Well, we get here to the book of Numbers and it starts off and it says, and the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness. That was their title for the book of Numbers, in the wilderness. didn't get a title that was associated with the numbers in the book until the Septuagint. Those were some guys around, I think, the third century or second century BC who wrote a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they called it arithmoi because of all the numbers there. Later on in the Latin Vulgate, it got a Latin title that had said the same thing, numbers. And so when we translated it in English, we called it numbers. But the early Hebrews said, in the desert. Now, In the desert sounds way more interesting than numbers. (laughs) And there's a good reason for that, because that's what it's about. It explains how a generation who had endless potential died off while wandering in circles for 38 years on a journey that should have only taken 11 days. 
Now that sounds a lot more interesting. And let that sink in for just a moment. One commentator put it this way. He said, those whom God had redeemed from slavery in Egypt and to whom he had displayed his grace at Mount Sinai, they responded to all of that with indifference in gratitude and repeated acts of rebellion. And because of that, they were made to live out their lives in the desert of Sinai while their children would be the ones who would enjoy the promises that were originally made to them. Whatever excitement you may have gained for a moment learning the original name might be deflated now by the prospect of reading a very depressing book. Everybody dies? Well, here's the good news. It doesn't end with failure. It ends with a different attitude of a next generation poised for success. That's where Deuteronomy comes in. Now they have to hear the law again, and then we get to Joshua, and that generation goes in and takes the land. So it it doesn't end bad. It has a happy ending. But we have to go through some difficult parts first. In fact, the book of Numbers, whereas the first three books were kind of a little bit more written to the first generation, the book of Numbers is written to that second generation. Because by the time it's written, the failed generation, aside from Joshua, Caleb, and at this point, Moses, they've all died off. Thus, it becomes a manual for us of how to journey with Jesus in order that we might enter into the promises that God has for us, just like he had for them. Now, doesn't that sound exciting? That sounds way more exciting. So how will Numbers do that? Well, Numbers, in its place in the Old Testament, is it continues a story that began in Exodus. Remember in Exodus, God called Moses to go tell the people, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And that didn't go well at first, right? So what happens when Moses comes back to the Lord? He says, Lord, you didn't do anything you said you'd do, Right? You didn't do anything you said you'd do. You told me you'd do this and you didn't do any of it. And the Lord says, Moses, you write it down. Let me tell you what I will do. And he makes three promises to Israel. And all the book of the law revolves around these three promises. He says, I'm gonna bring you out of Egypt with my strong right arm. I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And I'm gonna bring you into the promised land. Well, two of those promises have already been fulfilled. The promise of taking them out of Egypt, that was fulfilled in the first half of the book of Exodus. And it culminated in the Red Sea experience. They never had to worry about the Egyptians again. Then the second promise of having a relationship with them, that was fulfilled both in the second half of Exodus. That's where God made a covenant with Israel. They became his covenant people. And all of Leviticus, that's where they learned how to be his covenant people. They're at Mount Sinai. That leaves us with the third promise, to bring them into the promised land, which means now that we've entered numbers, they need to get on the move. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with Israel getting on the move. At this point, here we read, and it says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. So at this point, Israel has been out of Egypt for a year and one month, and they've spent most of that time there at Mount Sinai. Exodus covered a full year of time. Leviticus covered 30 days. Here we now have them. They're ready to go. The closest entrance to the land of Israel, what would become the land of Israel, the land of Canaan at that time, is a place called Kadesh Barnea. This is where the desert begins to end and topography begins to ascend up to the hills of Judea. From Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea is about 150 to 200 miles, depending upon which route they took. A journey of 11 days. Numbers covers 38 years. So ideally, we have to ask the question, what happened? Why did it take them 38 years, a journey that should have taken 11 days? And why are they still outside the land at the end of Numbers? Numbers tells that story. Have you ever had that happen to you? God gives you clear instruction. You see the destination in sight. You know what you need to do to get there, but you stray off the path and you never make it or you delay a long time in doing so. Anybody ever done that? Listen, This book has so much to say to us. I remember the first time I taught the book of Numbers and I said, Lord, I'm doing 10 chapters a a Sunday and I'm out of here in four weeks. (laughs) And I felt like the Lord said, well, I want to take your church on a journey 
like they've never been on before. And our study of the book of Numbers was one of the richest times of me as a pastor. It was one of those times that was so sweet for us as a church because the Lord taught us a lot. And that's because the book of Numbers is important. See, the generation that was about to enter the promised land, the second generation, they needed to understand why a journey of 11 days took 38 years. Something horrible happened. Something they needed to avoid. Lessons that we need to learn too. And so Moses wrote for them the book of Numbers. Moses wrote the book for a couple reasons. One, because of what he personally learned. One commentator called the book of Numbers, the memoirs of Moses in the desert years. And these were some of the most trying years of Moses's life. Now consider this. They occurred during Moses's latter part of his life, right? He had 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert as a shepherd, and then 40 years with Israel. So this is like the last part of his life, the last phase of his life. And it was the most trying, most difficult thing he'd ever gone through in his life. He learned through this time to press on despite sin, disappointment, and the pain of watching every single person except for Joshua and Caleb that he let out of Egypt die. He learned to love, the really hard to love, and he learned that the miracles of Exodus were just the beginning of his life of faith. Hopefully we'll be encouraged in the same way that we gotta always be pressing forward, that God has new trials for us, new lessons to learn, new ways to grow, new ways to be stretched, and we have to learn to trust him. It is a life of faith, not just a beginning of faith. But he also wrote it for Israel because of what they learned what they learned about God's character. Numbers is a book of wanderings. You know, it shows both the why and the cure. So maybe if you're struggling with wandering in your life right now, or maybe you've struggled at times and you you have a hard time thinking how God sees you, well, it shows you why we wander and the cure for to not wandering anymore. Numbers is a book of contrast in God's character. We're gonna see God's wrath and God's mercy side by side. We're gonna see his anger and his love side by side. We're gonna see judgment for failure and faithfulness to his promises side by side. Numbers is also a book of orderly and proper worship. In fact, it's a great book to study if you are a worship leader or you want to be one. This was no mob going through the wilderness helter-skelter, as J. Vernon McGee said. No group ever marched more orderly than this one, and all of it was done by God's command, his instructions of how they would march. Lastly, and most importantly for us, Moses wrote it for us. God allowed it to become scripture for us. Because just as Exodus paints a picture of our salvation, and the Red Sea experience paints a picture of our baptism, leaving that old life behind, making that declaration, the desert wanderings, they represent the danger we face of not entering into the promised land in our spiritual lives. You say, promised land? Wait a second, I thought that's heaven. No, the promised land is not a picture of heaven. I don't know about you, but there's no giants, no walled cities, and no battles to be fought in heaven. I know that. So the promised land is not a picture of heaven. There are no invaders, there are no challenges. Everything is perfect. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. That's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. Everything's done perfectly up there. It's only here where things are a mess. Like people talk about, oh, this world is a mess. Well, this is, but that part of the world isn't. Everything operates exactly as God wants it to. And someday it will again when we're in heaven. So the promised land is not heaven. There are no battles to be fought there. The promised land represents the abundant life of the spirit that Christ has promised to you and me. The desert represents the life of the flesh, living out that life in our own strength and failing repeatedly, wandering in circles over and over again. It is a place that we must move through on our journey to maturity, but it is never a place to live in. Turn to Hebrews chapter four because the New Testament references the book of Numbers quite a bit. Verses one and two. It says, let us there Therefore, fear, and here the fear does not necessarily refer to the fear of God per se, but it doesn't necessarily refer to fear of God either, but it refers to we should have a reverential or respectful approach to our walk with Christ, not a lackadaisical one. Let us therefore have that respect towards our walk with the Lord, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. 
For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, the ones who didn't enter the promised land. Read chapter three and it talks about them because they hardened their hearts. They tested the Lord. For the word was preached to them did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. So one of the lessons that Numbers will teach us is God's way of moving forward. We have to trust God's way. We have to approach our our walk with God respectfully. You know, we have to take it seriously. We can't have a lackadaisical approach to it. It's we're going to learn how he directs us. We're going to learn why being faithful to him is important and how you and I can grow spiritually in the difficulties of life. The book of Numbers also gives us a very big vision. It shows us where God is taking us. And what will it take what it will take to get there? It asks the question, what inward qualities must God develop in us and what inward qualities does he demand in us along the way? Now don't you think that sounds applicable? Don't you think that sounds like something we're studying? Warren Wearsby said, The problem with numbers is the people were counted, but they couldn't be counted on, because all but two of them died during Israel's march. You and I will learn how to be someone God can count on. Someone who settles down to serve the Lord faithfully right in the place where he's assigned me. That's awesome. First Corinthians chapter 10, you can read it later on, but it talks about how, listen, all these guys, they all experience just what you experienced, Corinthians. In fact, Corinthians is the, is kind of the companion book to numbers because the Corinthians were carnal, just like these guys who lived in the desert. The Corinthians were desert Christians. They had not gone into the promised land yet. They needed to grow up. They needed to mature. And so he tells them, he says, guys, listen, everybody that came out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea. They experienced all the miracles, everything, just like you have. You've been saved from your sins and rescued. Problem is, and then he lists every trial or most of the trials they went through in numbers where they disobeyed. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says these words. Now all these things happened unto them for our examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to trust the Lord. We, we may have come through lots of battles, but there's more battles to be fought and, and God wants us to win them. He, he, he will win them through us, but we have to trust him. The book of Numbers, not only does it teach us God's way of moving forward, not only does it give us God's vision of how to move forward, but it teaches us that we have to approach life God's way. You know, the idea that the Lord spoke to Moses, that's another one of the first words. Another Hebrew name they would give to the book is, and the Lord spoke. But the idea that the Lord spoke to Moses is repeated more than 150 times and more than 20 different ways in Numbers. When we are in the wilderness, what's the temptation, right? Oh, you know, we got to figure this out. Our temptation is to launch 100 different schemes and plans to escape. But only God's way really works. And the book of Numbers gives us God's way. One more thing. I do want to give the structure of the book just so you can know where we're headed. The book really is simple. It divides into two parts. The first 25 chapters cover the first generation. The rest of the book covers the second generation. The first 10 chapters, which we'll move through pretty rapidly, shows how Moses gets them ready to get moving. 50 days it takes where he's getting them ready to get moving. They do move during that time, but they move slowly. Then chapters 11 through 25, they cover the rest of the 38 years. Cycles of rebellion and judgment. Now here's the cool part. Even though it's rebellion and judgment, there's gonna be killer snakes, people swallowing craters, and talking donkeys. You can't get that anywhere else. One of the books of the Bible can claim that. Not too many. And did I mention a weird guy named Balaam? Oh boy, that's gonna be some fun. That is gonna be an interesting four or five chapters. Balaam. If you haven't read the book yet, read through it. You'll definitely get weirded out. Well, Numbers chapter one. When the Lord spoke unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they were coming out of the land of Egypt, and this is what he said. This is where it starts. Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families, 
by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles. From 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Did I forget to mention Numbers is a book about numbers. (laughs) And so it starts off with Moses being told he's going to count. He's going to take a census. He says, take the sum. Do a head count. That's what the word poles there means. The word poles means, a a pole means a skull or a cranium. Do a head count, literally, of all the families, all the children of Israel, after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their head count. And who is he counting? Not everybody, so it's not a census of the entire nation, but from 20 years old and upward. So if you're 20 years to infinity, however old you were, they're going to be counted with one caveat. All that were able to go forth to war. So the requirement was that you could still fight. If you could still fight and you were 95, you were counted. If you couldn't fight and you were 65, you weren't counted. That's just how it was. Which shows us also something else here. Numbers is a book of warfare. It will teach us how to win or how we can lose if we're not careful. The battles that are facing us on our journey with Jesus to the promised land. While this is not the main focus of the book, the reason it was called Numbers later on is because it's divided by two censuses. You count the first generation, and we're going to get into that today, and then back in, I think it's chapter 25, you count, or 26, you count the second generation. Now, what's interesting is... The first generation, it starts with 603,550 fighting men. When you get to the second generation, there's only 601,730 fighting men after 38 years. You might be thinking, okay, so they only lost like, you know, 2,000 men. No, 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 remember, kids are coming up. You should be growing. You certainly shouldn't be shrinking at all. The fact that they have a negative shows that the Israeli army was decimated during that 38 years. Decimated. And when we consider that God's command was to be fruitful and multiply and how much they had to have multiplied while in Egypt for 400 years to get to these numbers, it shows you that they were losing instead of gaining in the desert. They were going backwards. And that's really the truth about your walk with the Lord. There really isn't walking in circles. It just looks like you're walking in circles. You're actually going backwards. You're either going forward with the Lord or you're going backwards. There is no stationary with the Lord. And so Israel was going backwards by the time that we get there. Verse four, and with you, there shall be a man of every tribe, every one head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men that shall stand with you. So here he says, you're going to count everybody. You're going to label them, you know, by their, by their families, get them all gathered together by their families, by their households, by their tribes. And then he says, you're going to take from out of there with you, as, as they're being gathered and counted by head, head count, standing with you, there's going to be a head of the house of his fathers. The word here, head, means a leader or representative. So each tribe will have a leader or representative standing with Moses as their tribes are counted. So this is a pretty cool moment. I mean, a pretty celebratory moment as all the people of Reuben are going to be counted. How many? You know, and they count out the number and they cheer, ah, you know, and then Simeon, you know, ah, you know, I mean, I mean, it's a pretty powerful moment here. And, and these guys are standing up front with Moses as representatives for their tribe. It's kind of like a, we got spirit. Yes, we do. We got, or we got people. Yes, we do. We got more people than you. Something like that and whatnot. So this is a very powerful moment. And so each of these guys here, their name is listed. It says, and of the tribe of Reuben is Eliezer, the son of Shadur. Now, Eliezer, his name means God is a rock. Keep in mind these names. I'm going to go keep, just read through them, but keep them in mind. Now, from the tribe of Simeon, the representative was Shelumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. 
which means his name, Shalumiel, means the peace of God or the friend of God. God is my friend. Of Judah, Naashan, the son of Amminadab. Naashan is kind of a weird word. It actually means diviner, but it was used in Israel as God is the one who gives me direction. Because certainly diviners were not cool in Israel. Of the Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. Nathaniel means given of God. Of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. Eliab, oh, Nathaniel means given of God. Eliab means God is a father. Of the children of Joseph, of Ephraim, because remember, two tribes come from Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. Of Ephraim, it is Elishama, the son of Amihud. And his name means God hears or my God has heard. Then you have, it says, of the tribe of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazer. Of Benjamin is Abidan, the son of Gideonai. Abidan means father, my father is my, is my judge. Dan means judge, so Abidan is my father is the judge. You get to of Dan, you have Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai. And Ahiazer means my brother is my helper. Of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Ochran. And Pagiel means this occurrence is from God. Of Gad, the representative was Eli. Asaph, the son of Deuel. And Eliasaph means God is my gatherer or God is my provider. And then finally of Naphtali, their leader was, a representative was Ahira, the son of Enon. And Ahira, it's interesting, it means my brother is a sinner. I hate to be his brother. Every time you say, what's your name? My name's Ahira. Oh, you got one of those brothers. Verse 16, why were these guys chosen? These were the renowned of the congregation princes of the tribes of their fathers, heads of thousands in Israel. And Moses and Aaron took these men, which are expressed by their names, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month. And they declared their pedigrees after their families by the house of their fathers, according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward by their poles, by their head count. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Why are these guys chosen? Well, it first mentions that they were the renowned of the congregation. The phrase there, the renowned, means these were the famous ones, or literally it means these were those who had a name. More clarification is given in verse 17, that not only were they princes in the tribes of their fathers and representatives of their families, but it mentions that Moses and Aaron took these men specifically, which are expressed by their name. The phrase they're expressed means they were designated or marked by their reputation by this name. That phrase expressed actually is the same word for blasphemy in the Bible. It's a word that we would say when you slander God's name or you slander someone else's name. This is the positive side of that word where you would give someone a good name. So in other words, normally, and normally I don't like to get into name meanings in the Bible because I think Lots of times you can find stuff that's just not there. I think names are cool, and most moms and dads probably just name their parent, their kids after that because they, they love that name or they love that attribute of God, and so, and my God is a rock. But in this instance, Moses points out that these guys were given significant names because of their character and reputation to represent their community. Why would he pick these guys? And why these names? Because in the battles that they were about to face, because this is a book of warfare. The hardest thing Israel had faced to this point in their journey would be what they're about to face. They would need to remember these things about God. And you know what? What a great encouragement that is to us. Because when we look at all these things and we go through the battles of life, isn't it good to remember that God is your rock? 
I mean, we need to remember that, right? Because well, I don't remember who it was. It was a dear old saint. She was a missionary. And she said, I may tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles beneath me. Isn't that good to know? Because there's times where we're shaken and we don't feel like rocks at all. And yet we can rest on the fact that God is our rock. He is never moves. He is always there. He is always firm. And we see that picture of him as a rock following him all throughout the desert. There, well, where's the water coming from? There's the rock. He was just there wherever they were, he was. And they didn't have to worry. Or how about the next name? Shalumiel, which means the friend of God or God is my friend. Don't you need to know that God is on your side, that he's your friend? through the mess that you're going through? Because sometimes when you're fighting, you might look around and go, I don't know of any, I'm in this alone. Well, you're not in it alone. God is your friend and he's with you. What about God is the one who gives me direction? Don't we need to know that as we're journeying with Jesus? Don't we need to know that there's a place we're going, that we can turn to him, that he's gonna lead us? What about Nathaniel, which means given of God? Don't we need to know that God is the one who is the one who gives us what we need. He's the one who gives us gifts or gives us the ability to do what he's called us to do. Or Eliab, God is a father. Sometimes it's neat, my kids, think we, me and Bev might know about something going on with the family or whatever, and we're kind of worried about something, but my kids, they don't ever worry about that, right? They know daddy takes care of that. They just don't. And so they party, they just enjoy life. They come and they jump in my arms, even though I'm, I just came home that day and I'm just thinking, man, what are we gonna do about this situation? And, and they just rest in my arms because they know I'm their father. It's good to know that God is your father, amen? You just rest in him. He's got everything under control. This is his gig, not mine. God is sure to finish what he has started in us. We are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. The only thing that stands in the way is our own selfish desires. We will see the Israelites make many mistakes just as we have the ability to do. But God isn't finished with the Israelites, and he is never finished with us. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Because you called us as your own, you brought us to your